Hey everybody, thanks for checking out the Glendale Road Church of Christ podcast. You're welcome to join us anytime you're around. We are at 1101 Glendale Road in Murray, Kentucky. We meet for worship every Sunday morning at 9 a.m., followed by our Bible study at 10 a.m., and we come back every Sunday evening for a bonus worship hour at 6 p.m. Also, every midweek on Wednesday at 7 p.m., we have a Bible study. You'd be welcome to join us. We'll be sure to save a seat for you. Now, here's this week's sermon. Today's scripture, if you're following in the Pew Bibles, is on page 1126. Isaiah chapter 43, verses 18 and 19 from the New King James Version. Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Be seated. Good morning. God is good. All the time. I saw probably the best executed karate chop from a preacher last Sunday as ever I've seen. And this little thing went flying, and Derek's a good retriever as well as song leader, so that was good to have him there. The, in Roman mythology, there was a god, and this god was thought to be one of gates, doors, and transitions, and sort of stood in the middle ground between the beginning and the end, and was often referred to as the initiator of life. Janus was the name of this god, and Janus had excuse me, not Janus, Janus, J-A-N-U-S, was two-headed. One was facing forward, the other was facing backward. So our month of January is named after this particular God because we look back on the previous year and everything that occurred there, but we can also look forward to the year that lies ahead and hopefully its possibilities and good things that we wish for. Now, psychologists have noted that a sense of renewal comes with a new year. And so people naturally reflect on what they want to improve, and many take measures to do just that. Uh, You're going to notice, those of you that go to any gym and work out, you're going to see an influx of a lot of people that you probably haven't seen before. But if you'll wait till about March, you probably won't see them as much. And that's one of the things that has been studied. Gym memberships soar in January, but the activity, the foot activity, usually has reduced by March. So some people, they start out with with great hopes and the aches and pains become a little bit more than probably what they bargained for, I suppose. But at this point in Isaiah, Israel is depicted as being in Babylonian captivity. If your Bible's open to Isaiah 43, you see this in verse 14. Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, For your sake I will send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, the Chaldeans who rejoice in their ships. Israel undoubtedly felt that God had abandoned them, but he assures them that he has actually redeemed them, verses 1 through 3. He says, but now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. 
When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place. Sounds like a song we sing, doesn't it, Derek? The Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Maybe you felt abandoned by God of late or sometime in the recent or distant past. Problems continue mounting up and you see no light at the end of the tunnel. And so you wonder, probably like Israel, has God abandoned me? Has he forsaken me? Thing is, you and I are not captives in a foreign land, but sometimes we can be captives of our circumstances. And God's remedy to Israel in this particular chapter, I think is fitting for us as well. Look at verses 22 through 26. But you have not called upon me, O Jacob, and you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me the sheep for your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not caused you to serve with grain offerings, nor wearied you with incense. You have bought me no sweet cane with money, nor have you satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance and let us contend together. Their problems stem from the fact that they were not worshiping God. Much to the contrary, they continued in sin. And you know, it's, it's, it should come as no surprise that when a person doesn't choose God, that life can get difficult. And maybe circumstances seem unfair or mounting. Well, where is God? And that's, that's a question that I always ask people when, when Christians say, you know, I need to talk. Okay, come on over. And so, you know, they say, this is what's going on. This is how I feel. You know, one of the first questions I usually always ask them is, what's your prayer life like? And I've noticed a correlation between a poor or lack of a prayer life and the despair that they feel because of what they're going through. And so I, I heartily recommend that uh, a poor prayer life be done away with and that you make prayer part of your everyday life. Now, some people say, well, you know, I just don't know what to pray in all this. And sometimes we find ourselves in those positions. And you know what? The good thing is we've got brothers and sisters in our moments of weakness that we can say, would you please pray for me? And you know what? They'll do it. They'll pray for you and they'll pray with you. And you've got to remember also that we've been given a promise in Scripture that if we struggle to pray, we have to remember that God's Holy Spirit can aid us in that time. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now I would love to be able to say this is how that works. I don't know other than what Paul has said. The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, uh, and we really don't know what we ought to pray for if you found yourself in that circumstance. I feel like I should pray, but I don't know exactly what for. But God's Spirit will make intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. I would love when I get to heaven, if I get to heaven by God's grace, I would love to say, what did you mean by that? How actually did that work? 
because I'm one of those that's, I'm just curious. I want to know what exactly that means, how it works. And I'm sure, but God would probably say, you don't need to know. Just believe, just have faith. Okay. So I have, as a part of my prayer life, I have at least two or, at least two or three things that I pray for, try to pray for daily. Um, the first, I, I always begin with the Lord's Prayer. Now, you remember when Jesus' disciples went to him, they, what did they say? Lord, teach us to pray. Now, I know somebody's probably going to say, well, vain repetition. You, you should really look up that phrase and study that to see what Jesus meant by it. There was a writing in the first century, uh, a Christian writing called Didache, and it says in there to pray the Lord's Prayer three times a day, in the morning, midday, and in the evening. Obviously, that's not an inspired book, but it was written to a Christian community to say, here's how you practice Christianity. And oftentimes, rabbis were asked by their disciples how to pray. And the rabbis would give their disciples prayers to pray, and they were expected to have been prayed verbatim. And so I, I pray the Lord's Prayer beginning out because that helps orient my mind. And then I give a prayer of thanksgiving to the Lord for how good He is. And... After that, I offer a prayer of repentance uh, for God to forgive me for my sins and to, to restore me, make me right. Praying has an effect that, uh, you know, we sometimes think, well, this is what I need of God. This is what I want God to do, this, that, and the other. But you've got to keep in mind that God is all-knowing. He's omniscient. He knows what we're going to pray before we pray it, and He knows what He's going to answer. And well, so somebody's going to say, well, what's the point of prayer then? That's the wrong way to look at it. Prayer is, yes, us talking to our Father in heaven, but it's also forming us spiritually. Because when we think about this, let's say if I've got somebody that doesn't really like me and I know it and I may not like them, you know, if I pray for that person and for me, it's going to be hard for me to hold animosity and bitterness in my heart because I've taken that matter to the Father. And I've prayed to him for it. But if I don't pray about it, it's easy for me to not like or to rudely treat thus and such a person. So prayer is very much about spiritual formation as anything. So, you know, if you've found yourself in a rut, look at your prayer life and, and maybe you want to begin one if you don't have one or alter what you have. I know someone once said, if nothing changes, nothing changes. So if something's got to change, it has to start with you. So the context of this, and then I want to move on with some application. The context of this, if you look at verses 16 and 17, thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and horse, the army and the power, they shall lie down together, they shall not rise. They are extinguished, they are quenched like a wick. God is reminding Israel, I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you out of Egypt. And so he says, forget that in the verses that were read. Do not remember the former things, nor count the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. So he's saying, you've seen what I've done, but forget that because I'm going to do something new. They would have another exodus from Babylon and ultimately, we would have an exodus from sin thanks to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. 
But when you talk about a divine reset, there are two passages that spring to mind for me that I think are worth us looking at. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable uh, uh, service. Excuse me. Now, when you think about this, when I say the word sacrifice in the sense of the temple, or what do you think? You probably think of an animal being put to death. But Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Consider yourself dead to yourself because you, as he said in Romans 6, 4, you're walking in newness of life. So this contrasts the animals killed before being placed on the altar. So the notion of a living sacrifice is really kind of an oxymoron, if you think about that. And that's not, a, that's not an insult, calling an oxymoron. Well, he done called someone an ox and a moron. No, no, that's, that's not at all what that meant. Sacrifices are put to death, but living sacrifices... That's when I give my body to God in service to Him. I sacrifice my wants, my desires, my urges, proclivities, whatever else you want to add to that. My life is no longer mine to do with as I please. It belongs to the Lord and I must do what He bids of me. Bruce Larson in a book called Believe and Belong tells how he helped people struggling to surrender themselves to the Lord. He says, for many years I worked in New York City and counseled at my office any number of people who are wrestling with this yes or no decision. I often suggest they walk with me from my office to the Fifth Avenue RCA building. In the entrance of that building is a gigantic statue of Atlas, a beautifully proportioned man who, with all his muscles straining, is holding the world upon his shoulders. There he is, the most powerfully built man in the world, and he can barely stand up under this burden. Now that's one way to live, I would point out, trying to carry the world on your shoulders, but now come across the street with me. And he would go across the street from there to St. Patrick's Cathedral, and in there was a shrine of the boy Jesus, perhaps eight or nine years old, with no effort holding the world in his hand. He made the point by saying we have a choice. We can carry the weight of the world on our shoulders or I give up, Lord. Here's my life. I fully surrender to you. When we do this, it's called reasonable service, but the word should be translated worship. Some of you may have a Bible where it says actually worship or spiritual worship. Spiritual doesn't even appear in the the text. Uh, This same word appears in Romans chapter 9, verse 4, if you want to look over there. And it has exactly to do with, you know, the old covenant and how they worshiped then. Romans chapter 9, verse 4. Well, Romans chapter 9 is Paul talking about Israel's rejection of Jesus. And he gets to verse 4. He says, who are Israelites? to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God. There's that same word, service of God, and the promises. So Latreia is one of those words that has to do with worship. It's, it's specifically how you are serving God. And so in this instance, you give your body to the Lord. You give yourself fully to Him. 
and let him regard you as to how you should live. Now the next verse, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So, on the one hand, Paul urges us to give God our bodies. Now he urges that we give God our minds. Someone once wrote, let the mind of the master be the master of your mind. There are things sometimes that we can't alter our, our mindset on. But one of the things that you're going to learn is, you know, the mindset that you have will determine a lot. When you think about great coaches and great leaders, you think about people that had a certain mindset. And it's different than everybody else's for the most part. You know, I had a baseball coach when I was in high school. And when we were practicing, uh, he talked to us like we were men, meaning he did not filter his language because he, he expected perfection. Now, he knew as much as we knew that perfection cannot be given, but you're going to try real hard to be as perfect as you can be. And also, you, you observe different, uh, different leaders, different coaches. The, the greatest one that I've ever witnessed is Pat Summit. Um, I know you're Kentucky fans, most of you, and it's, you, it's okay to be wrong, but Pat Summit was the University of Tennessee girls coach, the volunteers coach. And so at a company retreat, we went up to Knoxville, stayed overnight. Bruce Pearl was the men's basketball coach at the time, and uh, we got to hear from both Bruce and from Pat. But the neatest thing was to go and watch the Lady Vols practice because you got to see Pat Summit. And one of the things she would tell us, she shaped the culture of her team and the way that she did that is first thing when she goes in to the office, she goes to every one of her coaches, greets them, asks them how they're doing. If she knows that one of them has a family member struggling with this, that, she will ask how they're doing. You know, she's really involved in the lives, not only of her coaches, but her players. And just by showing that ounce of care, she said that built a camaraderie. Well, then you go on from there and we're watching this practice. And at the time, Candace Parker was a lady of all. If you don't know who Candace Parker is, you should look her up. Great. She, she dunked the basketball. Tall, beautiful woman who just was great at basketball. So Candace Parker's out there and there's some others out there and you're watching. But what I'm noticing is what Pat's doing. So you've got coaches working with different, different groups of girls. And Pat will go and she'll just watch what they're doing. And her coach is telling them what to do. And if she sees that they're missing something, she'll step in and say something. And at one point, one girl I don't think was getting it just right. So she was getting frustrated, which anyone's prone to do. And she, uh, she was showing her frustration a little bit. And oh, Candace, she said, no anchors. No anchors. I'm sitting there going, what? No anchors. And, you know, okay, they knew what she meant. Well, we found out when Pat spoke to us that they have this analogy by which the team lived by. And that was, if you are an anchor on this team, you're going to hold this team in place. But if you are a sail in this team, the winds will take you and carry you on. So when she was saying no anchor, ah, now that makes sense. 
So having a mindset is definitely something we should have, but the mindset we should have is obviously that of being a Christian. And I believe, contrary to what others may think, that the happiest, most joyous people on the earth should be those who go by the name Christian. Sadly, that's not always the case. Some of them look like the most miserable people alive. And sometimes life circumstances does that, and we understand. But as a whole, when you think about it, the, world, the word gospel means good news. And so if it's good, why don't we live like it's good? Well, when you have the renewal of your mind, the purpose of it isn't to be positive, upbeat all the time, but it's to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, we live in a time where so many who call themselves Christians, so many who call themselves churches, they're going by the wayside. They will buy anything, and then they will turn around and sell it. And rather than the church influencing culture, you have society influencing many who call themselves churches. And they are now making it okay to endorse things that you and I know God would not. To say that what God calls a sin, they give another name to normalize it. Have you ever noticed how that happens? It starts so small, and you use a word to normalize it or to glorify it. For example, when I was a kid, they were called trash men, right? One was hanging off the back of that truck going around. Who is that? Oh, it's the trash man. Now they have a fancy title, waste coordinators. They're still trash men, right? Uh, secretary, lady that sits up front, answer it right. They're administrative assistants. So they've changed everything. Okay, if you want to do that, that's fine. But now they'll take a sin and they'll say, well, you're born that way. Or they'll say, well, it's an alternative lifestyle. The grossest one that I have heard of recently what you and I would call a pedophile, some are now arguing that they should be referred to as minor attracted persons. Look it up, Google it, and you can read all about it. It's sick. If you just dress it up and make it sound nice, then it'll be okay and everybody should accept it. And I think people are finally waking up to this. If your Bible's open in Romans, please go to chapter 1. Because I want you to see this with me. They did not face anything any greater or worse or better than what we did. And as a matter of fact, Paul, in stating all this, gives an illustration of how Roman society operates. And you will see beginning in chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, 
even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Now, pause. Egyptian society, their gods often took the, uh, the form of some animal. Um, and so, okay. Now, by the time you get to the Greeks and the Romans, their gods look more like humans. So he's speaking specifically about all these societies and their idolatry. But he doesn't give it up there. Verse 24. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also, the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burning in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of the error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do things which were not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, notice that, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death. Not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, if that sticks in your crawl, Paul wrote it by inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, telling us what God's divine will is. If you don't like it, you don't have to live with it. But don't call yourself a Christian. We don't get, this is not a buffet where we go up and get a plate and say, I'll take a little bit of grace. I'll take a little bit of mercy. I'll take forgiveness of sins. No, I don't want living righteously. No, I don't want be holy as I am holy. No, I, that's not how it is. And by the way, sometimes people think, well, all these Christians ever do is judge. We're not, I'm just telling you what God says. I'm not judging anybody. This is what God has said. I'm not ashamed of it, nor will I cower and not say what God says. Not because I put the words into his mouth, but because he has revealed these words through his inspired scripture. So, give God your body as a living sacrifice. Give God your mind that we will pursue the things which glorify him and give him great pleasure. Now, if you have ever had any electric, electrical issue, you know, there, there is a time that, uh, and I know this because I used to work for a cable company. And so when you would go to a house and you'd have to do some troubleshooting, 
you always looked over the basics. You know the basics, homeowners may not. Is it plugged in? Right, David? When we first, I gotta tell you, we first moved here, we were over here on Park Lane and we get the washer and dryer in. I might as well tell it on myself. It is funny. And uh, David pops by and I go, hey, I can't plug in my dryer. Uh, do I need to change that? He said, I'll go look at it. And he walked in there and he wasn't there long and he walked back out. And I was like, he was like, I got it fixed. I was like, oh, how'd you fix it? He said, you got to turn the plug this way. I said, this is why I'm a preacher. <laughs> but anyway, sometimes you call customer service. I'm having a problem with my modem. I'm having a problem with it. You know, the first thing they're probably going to tell you, reset it. There's a button on the back. Press that button, hold for three seconds, and let it go. And let's see if that fixes it. And a lot of times when you reset it, it does fix it. And probably what we may need is we're coming to the end of a year and looking forward to the next year is a reset, a divine reset, where maybe we look back and we go, how has my prayer life been? How has my devotion to reading scripture been? What about serving have I served others or have I been pretty self-serving? And just have a reset. Reset your life. Surrender to God. Give Him our bodies, our minds. Reset, I love, to that pre-sin condition. That's why Jesus came to die. Yes, it is to forgive us of our sins, but it's also to give us the hope of eternal life. So when we obey the gospel, we divinely reset ourselves. We're declared justified. He sanctifies us for his good, and sometimes it's easy to forget and be carried away by our worries and about ourselves, but we may just need a divine reset. Just hit that reset button. So I want to appeal to some of you. There are several here who have not yet obeyed the gospel, and you may not realize this, but you are known and you're prayed for often. And you've been reached out to, and nobody's going to be forceful about this. But if I were sitting down with you, here's what I'd say. First of all, I care a lot about you. I hope you know that. This is not coming from a bad place. I care a lot about you. I want you to go to heaven. I know you believe in God. What is holding you back? Is there a sin in your life that you just can't shake? Well, you don't become perfect and then go to God. You go to God and you let him make you over. He can make a masterpiece out of a mess. Really sincerely give some serious thought and quit making excuses. Give serious thought to obeying the gospel, to being buried with Jesus in the waters of baptism. And if there's something particular that's holding you back and you need to talk about it, well, let's have that chat. But I know people that love you want you to be saved. The Lord loves you and he wants you to be saved. And we want that for you too. So as Paul was once told, why do you delay? Arise and be baptized, washing away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. If you wish to do that, let us help you. We'd be so glad to rejoice with you. You can come forward as we stand together and sing.